0: our discussion about karma and last week we talked about wholesome regret and wholesome concern. These two guardians are great protectors and we'll continue that this week as well. First, just uh, a check-in about the meditation practice and it would be nice just to hear from a few people about whether you're getting a more direct experience of wholesome states, And uh, it's like we want to really ground our study of karma into what goes on in our mind directly, in our experience, so that we're really seeing that wholesome causes have wholesome results. And wholesome causes primarily refer to beautiful, wholesome intentions in the mind. That's ultimately what drives everything, you know, our the intentions are what drive everything any comments about just using the body scan meditation or body awareness in order to directly observe this world of karma cause and effect anything come to mind or questions about the instructions for meditation that come to mind yeah Uh, I'm
1: Jeannie Jeannie one of the things that I Start to kind of spin off into the box or whatever. And I find myself getting very tight kind of and constricted and then when T- tight and constricted because you're thinking or because you're trying to stop yourself from thinking? Well I think probably a little both. I uh-huh. at first I, I start to I start to think and i really be aware that I'm I'm doing it and then all of a sudden it's like whatever sometimes whatever the thoughts are um different thoughts affect me differently and I might start to get, feel kind of constricted and then I become aware of it um, then I'm able to let that go and let it pass and what I've noticed is that all of a sudden I just kind of feel like my body's just getting like really light and really large um, mm-hmm. just like everything is letting go and just sort of expanding
0: When the concentration deepens um, one of the effects is that the normal perception of the body changes because so much of our what we call the normal experience of the body is more about our perception like we think it's this way and so in a way the body then begins to feel the way we expect it to feel and When the mind is in a more honest, clear, non-projecting, not so affected by its projections or its perceptions, then the experience of the body can be very different. And it can uh, feel like there's nothing there at all, or it can feel very light. People think they're levitating, things like that. And whether one's levitating or not, the fact is that someone's just experiencing the body free from conceptual overlay of the body. And uh, there's a lot of freedom, a lot of joy arises, rapture arises when the mind begins to experience the moment freer and freer from its conceptual projections. We don't realize, this is the amazing thing, we just don't realize how oppressive it is to be living our lives uh, under the strong influences, uh, influence of our concepts, our thoughts about things, our story. And so when that falls away, when the mind isn't so confused by it, it doesn't mean there aren't thoughts, but the mind's just not identifying, not being confused by it, that things get very light and buoyant. And you could call that that buoyancy, that lightness, you know, the beginnings of that joy. It's a kind of joy.
1: That lightness.
0: Thanks, Jeannie, for sharing that. Other thoughts come to mind about the sitting practice? Questions about the instructions? Just sharing like how that was for you. Cause and effect. Yeah, Jen. I mean I know it's simplistic to say it the way you said it and the way I'm about to say it but it's really true. You know we've been looking for love in all the wrong places as that song goes. Always expecting what we intuitively feel is appropriate that part is somewhat accurate but thinking that we need it from out there that's delusion. Because first and foremost there's nothing in the way of us delivering what we really want. We can deliver the kindness, the attention, the respect right now. And it does make a difference. Anything else before we move on? Yeah, Nora. Maybe a little louder, Nora. Nora.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And recognizing that is what's really beautiful. Because you could be here and it could be like you really want to be home watching or doing something else. So this could be torturous for somebody right now being here. You don't have to own it.
1: (laughs) But, you
0: know, I expect there are a few at least. And uh, so what really makes it beautiful is not just having the experience of appreciation, but being aware, being mindful that the heart is appreciating, that the the heart and mind is joyful and uh, grateful. So there has to be that recognition, that's what kind of brings it to completion and Allows the healing and uh, allows it to have an effect. Thanks for sharing that. Your happiness makes us happy. Any time for one more comment before we move on? Anything else? Yes,
1: yeah, <laughs> Robert.
0: You know, we're so much um, in terms of our doing, which is you know the big habit of mind is to be the doer, and uh, doing is very tied to seeing, because I think just probably uh, as creatures, you know, human beings, we use our visual field. It's very much tied with our operating in the world. And so even when we're not actually looking, we're still using the visual field. We use it with thinking. And so it is, I don't find it easy for that to stop, but we don't, we can not be confused by it. So even though you're doing, moving your awareness through your body, I noticed that in immediately the first few seconds of the guided meditation, oh no, no, it was before, during the first half of an hour, the 7 to 7.30 sit, and I was doing some of the practice that we did just now. And I noticed, like in the first few seconds, I noticed how my eyes sort of were following down. You know, so it wasn't even that I was visualizing the body, which I was, but I I actually, like, had the sense that I had to look in order to move my awareness, you know. But luckily, that activity was stressful enough. It was sort of apparent enough that I could see it, and I could just encourage the mind, the heart. Like, you don't need to do that, honey. And so I think... You don't want to get upset about that part of the mind that's visualizing the different places in the body as you move down. Just let it just keep you know, you can be in the background. If you if you need to do that, you know, you neurotic mind. It's okay. I understand, because that's your habit to visualize things as you're moving about, doing, thinking. But you can just get interested in the sensations themselves. And um, you know, ultimately when we're practicing mindfulness, it's uh, we don't need to kind of... You know, the, the specificity of the object of mindfulness, the object that we're paying attention to, is useful initially because it shows up all the extra stuff, like that we're visualizing, you know, that we're moving our eyeballs and things like that. It shows up because it's not that specific object we're asking the mind to attend to, but ultimately everything can be included. So like when we're moving the awareness, it's like, you know, when you were aware of the legs, you know, there was the experience of the sensations, there was the visual field, whatever it was doing, imagining the legs or whatever it might be doing, or just colors or non-colors. And then there, were the, there was the awareness of the different mind states, the different qualities. And then there's also this awareness of this, you know, the whole thing. So ultimately, the specificity of the object is really used as a skillful means for revealing what's happening but not being known. So that eventually, you know, we're doing the body scan, but nothing needs to be excluded. And that's, uh, that's generally the case in meditation, that whatever we're doing, whatever the particular object is, it's not like the mind has to actively exclude anything. Um, initially, maybe a little bit, the sort of the directing toward, but not so much ever the excluding of. Maybe we'll leave it there for the discussion of the meditation practice tonight. We'll just... Begin to reflect on karma, and uh, like I mentioned last week, we've been um, reflecting on how the past informs. Like the past is showing up right now. This right now is the continuation of everything prior, because the past, of course, has to disappear completely in order for this to be this, but doesn't mean obviously we know in our bones that the past is having some effect on the here and now and it's very profound that effect in fact we say this is the continuation of the past and anything we need to know about the past is here in some way maybe it's here as some seed that hasn't sprouted yet a tendency that Right now hasn't been activated, but it's a potential in the mind or potential in the body, sort of waiting for the right conditions, and then it will arise. And last week, uh, I talked about that one of those things that's waiting to arise, we categorize categorize under wisdom, and the Pali terms hiri otapa, this wholesome regret and wholesome concern and it arises when conditions are right, we'll just be concerned, we'll feel regret. And it's a way of the past, the continuation of the past is, the, is now alive in the present moment. And so when we do feel regret, or we do have some wholesome fear, concern about what we might be about to do, we can be appreciating, oh, this is how the past Informs the now. Some of you know on Friday, um, five of us went up to see Dwelling in the Woods, a beautiful retreat center, a couple hours north of the city that's for sale now. Originally started by some nuns, um, and now owned by the Carondelet Center in St. Paul, and they folded recently just because they couldn't make a go of it, and. Uh, It's just so interesting to, when we're there, looking at the buildings and the land. Barbara was there with me and a couple other people. And it's just so interesting to see so many different things arising in my mind. And uh, and just to notice, like, uh, wholesome fear, wholesome regret. And it's like how the different, you know, experiences from the past come alive in that moment. And this, happen, this is happening to us all the time. It happens when we're sitting. You know, maybe next week when we're sitting. I think I mentioned it last week when we were sitting. It's like just to notice You know, when your attention is veering off towards something you got to do tomorrow or something you happened today that left a bad taste or something. You know, maybe there is some subtle part of the mind that do you really need to go there? Or if you do go there, feeling regret for having gone there, having gone lost in thought for ten minutes. And then you come to. And then there's that, not only the feeling of being tight, having been thinking for ten minutes, but then that very poignant emotion. Ah, oh, that's too bad. It's too bad you, you took that bait, got hooked, and, you know, and ran those laps when you didn't really have to do that. And now there's a price to pay. Now the body's tight, the mind's tight. And it won't go away immediately. It will be a while before things settle down again. And this really amps up when you your concentration deepens or you're on a longer retreat, so you have more balance, more samadhi. You really notice the effects of the mind worrying, planning, judging, hoping, lusting, and then you notice it, you know, however long it's been, and you see directly the ill effect of the mind having been in that activity. Mostly during our normal lives we're so relatively dull or disconnected that we don't we don't feel that effect. Which is why we wanna develop sensitivity. You know why in order to be a, a, a good student of karma, we have to be sensitive. We have to have a refinement to our attention. The mind has to be a sensitive creature, a sensitive instrument. Otherwise, we're oblivious. Like I said, I think, the first week, this line from Padmasa Sambhava, this Buddhist saint who brought Buddhism to Tibet, where he said although my view my insight is as vast as the sky my understanding is of emptiness is perfected my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour because what that insight and uh, basically you could say the insight into letting go or the insight into non-attachment what that does is it allows the system to be really sensitive profoundly sensitive And then what is it sensitive to? Well, it's sensitive to cause and effect. It's sensitive to the intentions that arise in the mind and the intentions that arise in other people's minds. It's not just our mind that we become sensitive to. We feel it. It's almost like psychic power. I mean, it's not really. It's just a profound sensitivity. But it's profound in the sense it's not usual. The sensitivity is not usual. And we really tune into the beautiful and not-so-beautiful qualities in our own heart and mind and in the hearts and minds around us. The more we study karma, the more it can feel initially, you know, if we don't understand it correctly, it can seem a little fatalistic. Like I've been saying, you know, now this moment is arising as the continuation of the past. sometimes people say well it's just my karma so even culturally now not so much people who study the teachings of the Buddha but karma is now I'm sure it's in the dictionaries you know it's one of our words English words now and, uh, and it basically has the same meaning people use it incorrectly as fake oh, it's just my karma it's my karma to be a teacher it's my karma you know and that's not what that's a misunderstanding it's a way oversimplification of karma because although things do arise from the past this moment in a sense is arising from the past the conditions of this moment what's really relevant is how we relate to what's arising right now so there are these always these two things in terms of the law of karma there's the, in a sense this linear thing like things have been set in motion in the past within my own mind and heart, let's say, but also, of course, other forces are arriving right now at the present moment. That this mind right now is relating to whatever it is that's arising in the present moment. So that's a very active influence. And the more we look at it, look at our situation, the more we realize that The mind that's knowing the present moment is by far the most important input in terms of how it is right now. You might think the fact that you were born a woman or a man or the fact that you were born this way or that way or the fact that you had this experience in the past or you didn't have that experience in the past is the most important thing. And this is why sitting practice or formal practice is so useful is we can, we can see that flip from the mind relating to the moment this way and then another moment the mind relating to the moment in a different way, a little bit as Jeannie explained. And just how it's, they're different realities and very little has changed except how the mind is relating, how the mind is knowing or how the mind is viewing or understanding the moment. This is from um, Ajahn uh, Sara. He says, For most people, karma functions like fate, bad fate at that, an inexplicable, unchangeable force coming out of the past for which we are somehow vaguely responsible and powerless to fight. I guess it's just like karma. I've heard people sigh... When bad fortune strikes with such force that they see no alternative um, to resigned acceptance, the fatalism implicit in this statement is one reason why so many of us feel repelled by the concept of karma. For it sounds like a kind of callous mythmaking that can justify almost any kind of suffering or injustice in the status quo. If he's poor, it's because of his karma. If she's been raped, it's because of her karma. From this, it seems, a short step to saying that he or she deserves to suffer, and so doesn't deserve our help. This misperception comes from the fact that the Buddhist concept of karma came to the West at the same time as non-Buddhist concepts and so ended up with some of their luggage. And so a lot of... You know, karma, of course, is a Sanskrit word. The Pali word is actually karma. Sometimes you might hear that, but because karma, the Sanskrit... Version has become part of our language. Most Theravadins who normally use the Pali, they just use the Sanskrit version, karma. But, you know, in Hinduism, for example, the different yogic traditions have a different take on karma. This idea of cause and effect as a linear, more or less deterministic thing is, you know, it's been around for a while, also in Western philosophy. He goes on. He says, For early Buddhists, karma is non-linear. And then later, This constant opening for present input into the causal process makes free will possible. This freedom is symbolized in the imagery the Buddhists used to explain the process. Flowing water. And the idea of flowing water is that um, you know, sometimes the force from the past is quite strong. It's like being in a really strong current. And all we can do is kind of dig in. Otherwise, we're going to be swept away. But we still have that option of digging in. You know, if you're in a strong current, you know, if you plant your feet well enough and you really lean into the current, you can be in a pretty strong river. And then when the water is not so strong, when the force from the past isn't so strong but then you can do all sorts you have a lot more choices what you do with that water you know you can move it around you can it's not we're not so vulnerable to being swept away by it and uh, as I've often mentioned you know he's this image of the flood is used a lot because the Buddha taught most of his 45 years or whatever in the flood plain of the Ganges River and other major rivers So this is their sort of natural disaster, something they had to deal with in the floodplain. And of course, so much of success in life depended on using, when the river wasn't raging, you know, guiding the river, guiding the water, rather, to where the crops were. And like so much, all of civilization really came out of that capacity to direct the current, to sort of use what's arising in the present moment. And this is what we have been learning, you know, in that it wasn't safe for all of us. You know, sitting still with your body sensations, especially for thirty minutes, is not a safe experience for everybody. Being somebody with a lot of pain in my body over the years of sitting, I know that's gotta be true for other people in the room. Some people are relatively comfortable, a lot of people aren't. So for some of you it was a raging torrent to sit and so as you were doing the body scan or whatever that looked like for you, it might have been a lot of just digging in your feet and trying not to get caught in hateful uh, attitude towards your body sensations or blaming or wanting to distract yourself. You know, God, I got to find some distraction because this is intolerable. I just can't be here now in this body with these sensations. But other people who had more of a calm, you were able to probably do all kinds of wonderful things with these sensations of the body. You know, you probably could create really beautiful qualities of inner joy, inner bliss, calm, steadiness, stillness, really expanded, buoyant states of mind because the conditions were different. But those of you who had to dig in your feet, you know, and that was your way of being skillful, not to give in to hate, you know, hating the sensations of the body. Who's to say you didn't generate more positive causes, consequences, than those who had blissful states, right? We often equate a good sit with how pleasant it was. But if you want to evaluate your sit... It's how effectively have we weakened the unwholesome tendencies of mind and strengthened the wholesome. So a lot of times when things are really easy, it's easy to space out. It's easy to take things for granted. We're not actually changing the conditioning of the mind very much. want to have this attitude if we could remember this all day long it would be really useful for us and for sure in our sitting we want to um, have this strong confidence that although things are arising we might have a lot of restlessness from the day a lot of pain physical emotional pain from the day we might have a lot of exhaustion but there's this very important present moment input This is where we're, in a sense, it's not really the best way to use the term, making karma. You know, we're setting in motion consequences by the intentions that are being reinforced in the mind. What intentions are being reinforced? And this is through this process of the four exertions. This is how the Buddha defines right effort. Abandoning and preventing unwholesome states, states that cause the heart to get tight, and cause suffering for other people as well. And to cultivate and maintain the wholesome states, states of mind that lead to the experience of release, happiness for ourselves and for others. So, this is that present moment, and instead of feeling, you know, we can turn this into a negative thing, like I've got to take responsibility for my mind. But it's, it's better to, to use an image that invites a sense of creativity. Uh, some of you maybe have read, uh, it's one of the readings, um, the chapter 10 from Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein's book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And uh, Joseph Goldstein, I think, read, wrote that, that particular chapter on karma. It's called Understanding Karma Cause and Effect. The very first paragraph in that chapter, you can find it at the... Buddhist studies website the very first chapter is uh, uh, Joseph Goldstein saying it's like painting a picture you know when we're there in the present moment aware of the intentions uh, and with some wisdom about the skillfulness and unskillfulness of the intentions that are there then it's like we're an artist we're out of love out of compassion we're creating something beautiful We're putting together something really beautiful. We're taking responsibility, but you know how it is. It's like if you're fixing up your house or if you're gardening or if you're working with children or just, you know, organizing a meeting, running a meeting. You know, there's this creative process where we're... It can be really joyful, this... uh, Working with all the different forces that are present, kind of doing something that will make it more harmonious, more beautiful, more useful, more functional. And that's the same thing we're like when we're working with our mind. And we're not so concerned, you know, if the mind is out of control or if it's in a really good place. Because whatever it is, we're just gonna, you know, work with it and make it even more beautiful. What can we do to make this beautiful? We really want that creative attitude about the mind, not a passive, I'm just going to let the negativity happen because mindfulness is just watching. Mindfulness isn't watching. I mean, there's part of mindfulness that's aware it's like this for sure. But that awareness is allowing for skillful participation. The point of that clear recognition that it's like this is to unleash this creativity. This wisdom, initially, we have to sort of do. Ultimately, we remove the doer. But initially, we have to mess around a little bit. One of the reasons I like Ajahn Tanisaro so well is he makes this point over and over again. If you've read his stuff a lot, he's, by the way, this Western monk, uh, abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego called, called Wat Meta. Wat is the Thai word for monastery. Meta, you know, means loving kindness. So, monastery of loving kindness. I of San Diego, and he's a very prolific author besides being a, a wonderful teacher. And so, in his writings and his talks, he really encourages this active role in the meditation, where well, you're experimenting. And basically what we're doing is we're appreciating it's all cause and effect, so let's observe. And one of the best ways to learn about cause and effect is to do something and see what happens. And the more we do that, the more we discover that that some of the best things we can do is not doing. But we don't want that to come out of fear or come out of like some imitation of what we think the Buddha is teaching. Like frozen that sort of frozen observer that frozen witness of experience we want to learn it directly you know through trial and error that that letting go the sort of allowing things to be the trusting really has to come directly it can only come from learning it can't be some imitation because if it is it will be a subtle kind of aversion that we're afraid. But initially, when we begin to sit and begin to be interested in spiritual life, we're we're in that place of being somebody who wants happiness. So we have to own that. I'm somebody who wants to be happy. Let's see if this works. I've noticed over the years of my practice, I've often caught myself erring on the side of passivity in my meditation practice and not being willing to experiment, to sort of be interested in what might be the causes for happiness. How, what might the mind do now? What could the heart do now that would support wholesome states? Some of you might remember um, Bhante Puneji, I think was his name, uh, one of the um, Sri Lankan elders who was visiting Bhante Sati um, a monk a Sri Lankan monk who has a center in Mankato and uh, Bhante Sati was spending doing more things in the cities at that time anyway um, Bhante Puntaji came to the common ground and he had written a book I forget the title of it Um, but he made this point too he, he had this I forget exactly how he articulated it but he talked about our first and foremost responsibility was taking care of the mind, creating a beautiful mind. And you know, in the section of the path where the Buddha is talking about mental cultivation, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, this is where he describes right effort as these four exertions to be learning how to abandon and prevent negative states of mind from getting established and learning how to maintain and develop wholesome states of mind it's like gardening you know you, you don't become a good gardener by just sort of observing <laughs> you know you get your hands dirty you dig and you make mistakes and you learn you know I put too much nitrogen in or I put too much mulch down or I over watered or I underwatered, or you know the soil has too much of this or too much of that seeds are too close And we learn. And so to kind of have that interest, and it's especially important with this class to have that curiosity with the mind. And one of the things we'll notice, you know, with that curiosity and that taking responsibility for the mind are the pains. And it's sort of a funny word. I like how um, Ajahn Sushito, this Western monk, describes it in his wonderful book, The Vision of Dhamma where he's talking about the Four Noble truths. Anyway, in this chapter, he's talking about the Asawas, which is sometimes translated as taints, sometimes as cankers. There's a wonderful list of words. Influxes, floods. Again, that word flood comes in. Yokes, corruption, intoxicant biases. (laughs) But he used to translate it as unknowing in action, which is quite nice unknowing and action or outflows I really like that translation of these this is sort of the forces in the mind most of which are unskillful and we call them outflows the way the mind tends to want to keep moving on one of the ways our mind wants to keep moving on and you know in Buddhism there's always a list so there's a list of either three or four of these in the earlier texts there were three and then seems like in the later text they added one. But, uh, so the three outflows, and this should be really apparent because we've all been watching our minds. How, like in the sit tonight or just generally today, how has our mind tended to want to flow on? or well, it tends to want to flow on in terms of sensuality. Always considering what might be a nice experience. Like, have you thought yet, tonight, how nice it might feel if we stretched out our leg a little bit, you know, and released that tension. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that helps. now, nice. or, you know, how many times at home today, when I was uh, preparing the talk tonight, or today, you know, did I wonder, you know, is there anything tasty in the fridge?
1: Or, you know,
0: what's on the internet? You know, maybe there's some news story that is interesting, or a new property on Craigslist that might be just the ticket I checked. Talk to you about it. (laughs) So, we all have, you know, that outflow of sensuality. It's only bad when we're not aware of it. And when we're not aware of it, that means we're going to take it personally. Because that's sort of the default view in the mind, is to take the outflow of sensuality personally. So, when there is that natural, unavoidable, Attraction to some sense experience. And then, if we're not mindful, then it's going to be me who wants to check what's in the fridge, or me who wants to see what's on the news, or me who wants to stretch out my leg. And then it's really hard not to act it out because we're not aware of it as being a flood, an outflow, a canker, a taint, intoxicant bias in the mind, <laughs> or whatever. So that's one. Another outflow that I'm sure you, you, you've you recognized, we'll recognize, is this outflow of becoming. The mind is always interested in who we might become. I might become a famous teacher, or I might become a bum, you know, or, you know, all these things that we can become in little ways and big ways. So not just like far out into the future, but. I can become the person, and it's often related to sex experience or sexuality, you know, the person who finishes his talk and gets to go home. So when I'm imagining it in terms of being somebody that's not this body, then that's becoming, that, that outflow of becoming, imagining who will be, what will be later. That's the tendency in our mind to outflow, to flow in that way. There's the outflow of ignorance, and he defines this as the inability to develop a mature response to dukkha. Right? So, it's a mature response to dukkha is to recognize it's like this. So, the outflow of ignorance is an unwillingness to look at it clearly. So, when there is dukkha, when there is suffering, when there is stress, and you notice your unwillingness, I don't want to deal with this now, I'm not going to deal with this now. It isn't as bad as it feels. You know, this isn't my fault. You know, I don't, I don't have to deal with this feeling because it's caused by somebody else. That unwillingness, inability to say, oh, it hurts like this now. Life feels like this now. That kind of honest and direct recognition that regardless of the reasons, it's like this now. The heart is squeezed, it's hurting. And it's like this now. So, non-denial, non-reactivity. All the patterns of distraction and denial and reactivity are part of this outflow of ignorance. So, this is what we see. And then the fourth outflow that was added, evidently, is the outflow of wrong view. And in a sense, all three of these happen because of wrong view. You know, it's wrong view that set them in motion. When we have the outflow of sensuality and we're not mindful and we take it personally, then we're reinforcing, we're increasing the momentum of that flow. In the future, it's going to have more of a tendency to flow. We're going to be more interested in possible sense experiences that will be pleasant. More interested in thinking about them. There will be a stronger tendency in the mind. So this is what we notice, you know. This is that. This is what we have to take responsibility for. And the more we take responsibility, you know, noticing the outflows, the more insight dawns on the mind. And initially, the insight, you know, the, the first insight is just this. Uh, The way it's described often, the first real grounding in wisdom in terms of how the Buddha taught is this awareness of how fear, concern, and shame or regret, how they can operate and inform our lives. It's like the past is informing my life if I let it, if I know how to read it or I know how to interpret it. So instead of using shame to hate myself or using fear to drive me into distraction because I don't want to feel the fear, I can use the fear to say, Oh, is there anything here that I'm not seeing clearly? You know, when fear arises, that's exactly what we we should do. Is there anything dangerous that I can take care of? And if there is, we should take care of it. And if there isn't, there isn't anything we can do or isn't anything we have to do. So we then can release the Message, the fear. It may not go away, but we know it's not delivering any useful information because we've checked. So that's the first wisdom. Then, the more we keep doing that and kind of start owning the mind, like respecting the ecology of the mind, the intentions, then there's this further distillation where we begin, it begins to dawn on the mind what is skillful and what is unskillful and we know it directly, not because we read a Buddhist list, but because we've observed the mind over and over again and we know very clearly that craving hurts. And non craving is beautiful and light and buoyant and liberating. You know, so generosity and simplicity, contentedness, these are not oppressive states of mind. These are happy states of mind. Otherwise, it's not what we mean by contentedness or generosity. It's something else, like feeling like we have to give. That's not generosity, that's like fear of not giving or a fear of being judged or something. So we just see very clearly, and we know, in a sense, energetically or viscerally or through direct observation, what craving is in the mind, what non-craving is in the mind, what aversion or fear or hatred is in the mind what non-hatred is kindness and compassion what delusion is in the mind that you know you know disconnection that denial and reactivity being lost not seeing things as they are we know that that's oppressive because the mind has to work to be disconnected. It's stressful to be disconnected and how liberating it is to be connected because we don't have to do the work of, of denial, of distraction. It just feels so much lighter. It's just so much more functional to be non-diluted. So <clears throat> this can be our work for the next couple of weeks as we continue our study is to really look at wholesome and unwholesome in terms of these three wholesome roots and three unwholesome roots. I'll read a discourse from the Buddha, <clears throat> from the Middle-Link Discourses, number 9, if you want to track it down. You can just put, I think you can even put MN, Maja Nikaya, Maja Nikaya, which means the middle Length Discourses, uh, so, but if you put capital M, capital N, number 9, I think you will get this. Um, but anyway, here's what the Buddha said. When a noble disciple understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way she is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dhamma, the way things are, and has arrived at, at this true Dhamma. And what is unwholesome? Killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome misconduct in sensual pleasures is unwholesome false speech is unwholesome malicious speech is unwholesome harsh speech is unwholesome gossip or idle speech is unwholesome covetousness is unwholesome ill will is unwholesome wrong view is unwholesome and what is the root of unwholesomeness greed is the root of unwholesomeness hate is the root of unwholesomeness delusion is the root of unwholesomeness of the unwholesomeness. And what is wholesome? Abstention from killing living beings is wholesome. Abstention from taking what is not given is wholesome. Abstention from misconduct and sensual pleasures is wholesome. Abstention from false speech is wholesome. Abstention from malicious speech is wholesome. Abstention from harsh speech is wholesome. Abstention from gossip is wholesome. Uncovetousness is wholesome non-ill will is wholesome right view is wholesome now doesn't that sound oppressive? you know that but we could we put this you know the way we live our life you know we think you know getting money is wholesome having nice clothes is wholesome you know having a good meal is wholesome you know in the sense of leading happiness we don't you know, that doesn't feel oppressive, like to go after another good meal or to get a good night's sleep or to get money in the bank or pay off debt. That doesn't feel oppressive but when we hear these things. So it's because we think, you know, not killing living beings is a hassle when there are mosquitoes around. And we don't we feel like, oh I shouldn't kill them, but it'd be a lot easier, it'd be nice to kill them. But we really want to check, like, actually, maybe it's nice to not kill them. Maybe we feel better not killing them than killing them. Maybe we actually feel better not taking what isn't given than taking what isn't given. You know, maybe it feels better to not cheat on our taxes. As opposed to having an extra couple hundred bucks, because we, you know, (coughs) massage things a little bit, this way or that way. Or however, whatever, however we cut corners in our lives. i played play with this just in terms of driving. You know, it's like, it's, it's so easy to justify driving. I mean, I still drive faster than the speed limit, but, you know, but I, and it always is stressful. And so I really looked, I'm like, well, what speed can I drive where it's not stressful, where it actually feels good? And I realized, when it's 70, I can drive 73, and I don't feel bad at all. It's, it's, it's pleasant to drive. But when I drive 75, it doesn't feel good. So, you know, I'm getting much better at just using the cruise control when that's appropriate. But then when it's 55, it's not, I feel like it's okay to go more than three miles over. <laughs> so then it's like 62 or 63. <laughs> but I really looked at, like, what makes me happy? And I realize, like, if I'm unconscious, I'll drive too fast and I won't be happy. It doesn't feel right. And even if I'm unconscious, it doesn't mean I'm happy just because I'm not noticing that I'm unhappy. I'm really unhappy.
1: <laughs> so
0: the Buddha, then, he goes, he says the same thing. So what is the root of wholesome? Non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion is the root of the, of the wholesome. When a noble disciple has thus understood the unwholesome and the root of unwholesome and the wholesome and the root of wholesome, he or she entirely abandons the underlying tendency to lust. He or she abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion. One uproots the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, one here and now makes an end of suffering. So the Buddhist. Suggesting we really get a, uh, we really take up the study of what's wholesome and unwholesome. In the same way, I think I mentioned this, this first week. You know, if there was gold hidden and there was some lawfulness to how the gold was hidden, we'd be very, uh, we'd put a lot of energy in understanding, uh, up, um, uncovering, like, the underlying principles of how that gold was hidden so we could more efficiently find it. You know, just like a geologist, they begin to understand, you know, certain conditions, where you find gold, where you don't find gold, and when you do find gold, you know, where to look and how to... So, we want to have that same attitude about happiness and unhappiness. If there are, in fact, like let's say the Buddhist just happens to be right, and there really are these unwholesome roots that always lead to unhappiness. When they're active in the mind, not only is it stressful right then, when greed is there, it's stressful right then, but it's setting in motion unhappiness for ourselves and others. Ourselves and others. And when there's a wholesome root present, it feels good right then and there. It's alleviating stress right then and there. And it's setting in motion happiness for ourselves and others well, we'd be very interested. Because why bother with all this other stuff? Why not go for a a happiness that will work no matter the superficial conditions of our lives, the circumstances of our lives? Because these unwholesome roots or wholesome roots, they have implications in all of the details, all the circumstances of our lives. Yeah, if I read this but it's a wonderful quote and I don't know who wrote it when you start getting sensitive enough to notice the ripples you make as you trudge through life you start to walk a little softer isn't that nice and it just seems to be so true when we start to appreciate this we just we respect what the mind is doing like this is the place not observing the stock market we're trying to fix our partners, it's really observing the mind. That's where we, that's where we get the goods that we really want, the release we really want. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, "We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world speak or act. With an impure mind, and trouble will follow you, as the wheels follow the ox that draws the cart." Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. And another translation expanded. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. Habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its way with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. even though initially, you know, it might, uh, it might seem like a burden to have to pay attention in this way. Um, it's like we're willing to put aside sort of a short-term pleasant experience. Human beings are willing to work pretty hard to get something in the end. To get to sort of set something really beautiful in motion. The trouble is we don't think there's anything we can set in motion that's of real value, so we're willing to take momentary sense pleasures. You know, when you think about how many people eat in ways that are unhealthy, and that's exactly what we're doing, you know, when we overeat or we eat the wrong kinds of food. It's like there's a momentary, whatever that momentary pleasure is, and it trumps the longer term effects of doing whatever we're doing. And this is true with the consumption of media. This is true with our habits of talking with each other, you know, what kind of conversations we have. There's a momentary something we're getting, and we don't care about the deeper thing that's being reinforced or set in motion because we are diluted. We don't think it matters what's being set in motion. And what mindfulness does. You know, mindfulness isn't just an awareness of the here and now. That wouldn't be that useful. What mindfulness reveals is Dhamma, the way it is. So mindfulness is revealing the underlying uh, structure, the process nature of this. It's not like a snapshot. You know, we have a Polaroid and we get a snapshot. It's more like it's more like, that, you know, now is a dynamic process. So when you take a snapshot of this, Dhamma, you're not getting a frozen thing. If you're really opening to this, you're really understanding the process of this. You're understanding how this is coming to be. You're understanding karma, cause and effect. So once we understand that, then we have a whole different approach to life. This is why there's such a big deal in Buddhism around samsara and this idea of past lives and future lives. It's not even about whether you need it, about believing in past and future lives. <clears throat> it's about this principle of cause and effect and really owning it. That so that we're in it for the long haul. We're living for the long haul, not for this superficial temporary experience. That can be had right now. But we're sensitive enough to realize what really matters. What really matters are the wholesome roots and the abandoning of the unwholesome roots. That really matters in terms of the happiness now, but it matters in terms of the happiness later as well. And we keep missing this. Not because we're stupid, but because we're not sensitive enough, we're not paying close enough attention. What human beings do makes perfect sense from how human beings are perceiving. When human beings beings perceive in this way, they act in this way. When we perceive, when we're mindful and uh, sensitive, we act in different ways. Nobody is mean and mindful. It w- doesn't, When you're mindful, it doesn't make sense to be mean. And if you are mean when you're mindful... It's, you see how unskillful it is and you just didn't have enough mindfulness to break the cycle. But you saw it and you saw that it didn't work. So you learned your lesson. Nobody is deeply mindful and unskillful. They just don't go together. Unskillful in the sense of causing themselves or other suffering. It's like the Buddha says, you know, arahants, fully awakened beings don't have any unwholesome roots operating in their mind, or if they're there, they're not confused by them, they're not acting on them. By definition, that's the definition of an arhat, of a fully awakened person, is they're no longer under the influence of the unwholesome roots. Greed isn't affecting their actions, their thoughts, their words. Aversion isn't affecting them delusion isn't affecting it so we'll leave it here next week we'll have small groups one of the nice things to share in the small groups next week would be your experience of the wholesome and unwholesome roots and especially this deepening interest or respect for this study like uh, we could all have t-shirts you know I'm a grateful student of karma of cause and effect you know
1: karma is my
0: teacher My guru, that I prostrate to. You know, like I respect the truth of cause and effect. I give my life to that. And I'll learn whatever it has to teach me. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Feeling the effect of being here together, the effect of hearing the teachings, recognizing any wholesome intentions in the mind, and you can water them by recognizing them, recognizing them as wholesome. everyone a good week of practice thanks for coming tonight everyone a couple more posts on the website if you're not finding the website make sure to let me know you can check in with Scott Um, buddhiststudies.comgroundmeditation.org if you have time to bring the folding chairs down that would be great take care everyone thank you for listening